0: Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys about the Pillow Pyro Serial Arsonist. So pour yourself some fire department coffee, and let's dive in.
1: On October 10th, 1984, a fire was reported around 7 o'clock at night at O's Home Center in a shopping plaza in South Pasadena, California. One of the cashiers, Jim Obden, ran into the hardware department that was covered in flames to try and help get a couple customers out of the building. He did survive this, but he did suffer from bad burns, and he was able to get some people out. However, there were four people that ended up dying in this incident, 50-year-old Ada Deal, her two-year-old grandson, Matthew Troidel, a 26-year-old mother, Carolyn Krauss, and a 17-year-old employee, Jimmy Satina. By the time firemen were able to arrive, the building was almost completely destroyed and all four people were deceased. The next day, arson investigators from Southern California are called to the scene to investigate and to determine what had caused the fire. Through looking into what had caused the fire, they end up determining that the fire was due to an electrical fault, but the fire captain, John Leonard Orr, at the time, well, the fire captain at the time, John Leonard Orr, said that it was not an electrical fire, there had to have been something that had caused it, and he thought that they were dealing with an arsonist. So, something that I have always found interesting, and maybe this is just me, I don't know, is how people how fire investigators can determine where a fire started. So I did get some technical or some information for you guys that came from an article. I believe it was like an educational document that had been written. But basically, there is the point of origin. So that's where the fire starts. And we'll talk more that comes up more later. But the point of origin is where the fire starts. So when police are investigating a scene, they will go around And they'll look and and try to find something that looks damaged more than other things. So if there's a specific spot that has more damage, they can pretty much determine that that was probably the point of origin. And I didn't get too much into it because it was a long document and I didn't want to spend the entire thing telling you guys how to search and determine what caused a fire. But apparently you can also kind of track the path that the fire took based on looking at different things and seeing what else burned and what else destroyed. And so I just find it super interesting how people could do that. But they did determine that the fire had started very quickly and less than five minutes after starting, it was across the entire hardware store and had gotten into some highly flammable polyurethane products. So it spread really fast because of that. Fires at this point just continued to show up that it was an alarming rate where firefighters were having to put out all kinds of fires of buildings all over town. They kind of did come to the conclusion that they were probably looking for an arsonist, and it was most likely the same individual. The main reason for them believing it was probably the same individual was that they started finding these incendiary timing devices. These devices were made up of a cigarette, three matches, and, And it was wrapped in yellow writing paper and then secured by a rubber band. Huh. Okay. So basically what would happen is the arsonist would light the cigarette and then it would light the match and then light the paper on fire. Like it would kind of just light everything down the line on fire. And they had plenty of time to get away before anything really caught fire. Like it wasn't harmful to them at all. Were
0: they using any type of like accelerant? No. I'm I'm just surprised that that would catch something on fire and get it to that point. Because I just, I'm thinking about matches and a piece of paper, basically. And that just doesn't seem that extensive.
1: I think, so what he was, what they were doing is they were leaving the device in like linen stores. And there's a couple that I'll go into where he was leaving them in like piles of pillows. Uh, So so he's leaving them
0: in strategic places.
1: Yes. Okay, I'm with you. Fire Captain John Orr was active with all of this investigation. He was a fire captain. He had also been investigator for quite a while. So he would go to all of these arson cases. He was pretty good to have on scene because he was really good at figuring out where... Things had like kind of where it had been started. So he had like kind of just that sense where he could be like, oh, yeah, it probably started over here. And then they'd go and look and it was about that area. In January of 1987, there was a convention for arson investigators that was in the city of Fresno, California. And during this convention, there was a lot of fires that ended up breaking out in Fresno
0: and in Bakersfield. Does that like trigger him or something? I I don't know. That's kind of, it's just weird timing. It is weird timing.
1: So the first one that happened, though, was in a Fresno drugstore. So he had put the device in a sleeping bag display,
0: which obviously. I mean, naturally, there's sleeping bags at drugstores. I'm thinking of like, (laughs) Walgreens has all kinds of stuff. Oh, you know what? Sure. Okay. Okay. I do feel like the old school drugstores, it was like. It was like a Walgreens where they had a lot of random stuff. Oh, yeah. They probably had tons of stuff.
1: At the same time as this fire, there was another fire across the street in a fabric shop. So the arsonist had hit both stores in one night. Then in a nearby town called Tulare, there was a drugstore and a fabric shop that also went up into flames. There was a fire that broke out in a display of dried flowers in a craft shop. There was just all kinds of fires. Like, I can't there was like 60 to 100 fires that were like just popping up all over
0: now were these fires resulting in a lot of deaths or was it predominantly the hardware store one
1: the hardware store was the only one that actually resulted in any death all of the rest just were the buildings and i think the hardware store the big thing was just all of the polyurethane that was everywhere that the it just made it so flammable and spread faster than anything investigators kept finding these devices the same ones in all of these locations and they ended up naming him the pillow pyro serial arsonist because he would stick it in pillows and, and like sleepy bags and displays. i know it's like a tongue twister <laughs> it is but that was what investigators and news people all started calling him Captain Marvy Casey of the Bakersfield Fire Department had also been investigating these cases and he was actually the, the one that had found quite a few of the devices in the pillows. He started to have suspicions that the person starting the fires was one of the 300 people attending the
0: convention. This is so criminal minds. Oh my gosh.
1: That, okay. That is my thought process throughout the, in researching this entire thing. I was like, oh my gosh, it's criminal minds. So- I have this book, for those of you that don't know, I've used it in many other episodes. It's literally called The Crime Book, and it's just this giant book that has all kinds of crimes and stuff. I use it a lot to get case suggestions, and it's usually got a couple pages about everything. That's where I read about it first, and I was reading it, and I was like, I need to cover this, because this
0: is literally criminal minds
1: in real life.
0: Like, hmm, who could the pool of people be? Well... They probably have an interest in fire and would want to be around it as much as they could. Maybe someone at the convention. Garcia, pull up everybody that was at the convention. Yeah, right. Just Come wait. On, baby girl. Because that's
1: basically what ends up happening. So I'll get there. So throughout this time, all these fires are just kind of happening. They're still searching for the person starting them. They don't have any idea who it is. Then in March of eight, 1989 there was another convention for arson experts in Pacific Grove, California. And this convention had an outbreak of fires between the conference in Pacific Grove and Glendale. Marvin Casey was like, all right, these devi- or these fires have the same simple... They have the same devices with the cigarettes, the yellow paper, the matches. Like, it's the exact same thing. It has to be the same person again. So after this first convention... Marvin gets a list of all of the people that had attended the convention. And he ends up looking through the list and narrowing it down to 55 suspects. And these 55 people are the ones that had traveled alone from Bakersfield to the convention in Fresno.
0: Smart to look at the people who were traveling alone, too. It is, yeah.
1: He, I mean, he had been obviously investigating this for a long time, so he knew what he was looking and lo- what he was looking for. A lot of people thought he was crazy. They were like, "You, I don't know why you're looking at an arson expert. Like, nobody would do that. And he was just like, no, I really feel like it's probably somebody here. I feel like they know what they're doing. I feel like they know about fires. And he convinces the ATF or the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms to do some testing on the paper that had been recovered from the craft store that had been wrapped around the device. And this is gonna get kind of technical because I'm gonna go into what they did to find some stuff. So they applied a chemical called ninhydrin onto the paper so that it would react to amino acids and pull up a fingerprint. So that's how people search for fingerprints apparently. So they ended up finding a partial fingerprint that they were actually able to use And they did a special photographic filter on it to deepen the contrast and to get extreme detail and to get detail from the fingerprint to actually find a usable print that they could match to another person. So they enter it into the AFIS, Automated Fingerprint Identification System, to run it across all criminals, as we've seen before. And it it didn't have a match. So then he was like, okay can you maybe please compare it to the 55 suspects that I have from the arson con- conference? And they're like, no, like we, we're not doing that.
0: That would require them going and fingerprinting them all, right? Yes.
1: So there was nothing really that went on between 1987 and 1989 with attempting to find out who had done it or who the arson was. However, the fires were still occurring. Then in March of 1989, there was another meeting where arson experts got together for a conference in pacific grove california and while they were all together there was a major outbreak of fires again in between the pacific grove conference center and glendale so marvin looks into these again and he finds the same devices
0: can we start listening to marvin please right
1: so marvin being marvin takes the list of the attendees from the 1987 conference and the list of attendees from the 1989 conference and compares them to see who was there then and who was there now. And he ends up narrowing his suspects down from 55 to 10. And he's like, it's probably one of these 10 people, right? So he brings it all to the ATF agents again. And he's like, can we get some fingerprints? So they agree to stealthily get these fingerprints without people knowing and to compare them to this print. So they do that, and it's fantastic, right? That they're finally doing their job, they're looking into this. However, the results come back in the late 1990s, early 1991, a string of fires occurred again in kind of centered around the Los Angeles area. So there was a task force, Abby, you're gonna love this, called the Pillow Pyro Task Force. Sure, why not? And they literally, obviously, were formed to identify and apprehend whoever the arsonist was. So a man named Tom Campuzano was part of the Los Angeles Arson Task Force. And he goes to this meeting on March 29th, 1991. And it's a fire investigators regional strike team meeting. And he starts handing out flyers that describes the mo of the pillow pyro serial arsonist at this same meeting was a man named scott baker who was from the fire marshal's office and he tells tom that this series of arson cases was also being investigated by marvin so tom's like well i need to get in touch with marvin then to see what he's found so they get in touch and they both agree that the arsonist is from the area and most likely an arson investigator. And so Marvin shares all of this information he has, you know, the list of the two pe- of the two conference attendees, the fingerprint results, all of the stuff that he had. And Tom is like, OK, let's use this newer technology that had come about from 1989 to 1991 and see if this connects to anybody and so they used the fingerprint and on april 17th 1991 they found a match to the fingerprint and this match was to the left ring finger of arson expert and fire captain marvin john leonard or oh nope the fire oh, captain
0: wait. from way in the beginning of yeah. our story i say that sounds familiar <laughs> Yeah,
1: he was the one that I said would show up on the scene and be like, I know where the fire started and just direct people to it. And everybody uh. thought that he had this sixth sense. And John was one of the 10 names that was on Marvin's list. So it's not sure how he their fingerprint didn't match to him originally when they first investigated the, all the fingerprints. But John was a 41-year-old fire captain. He'd had many years experience of investigating arson. He, everybody liked him. He was charming. He had a good reputation. He was typically the first one on the scene. First one to talk to the reporters and always seemed to have a lot of knowledge about what was going on. The ATF decided to investigate him and they investigated him for several months. So they placed a tracking device on his car to try to catch him in the act of doing something. But he ended up discovering the tracking device that was on his car in May of 1991, but they later installed a second tracking device and he never found that one. I don't know if he looked for it or just thought maybe they weren't looking for him anymore. Then on November 22nd, 1991, a fire broke out at the Warner Brothers lot and this made me really sad, but it burnt down part of the set of
0: the Waltons TV show. Oh my gosh. Well, how'd he get on that set? I don't know. (laughs) I don't have an answer to that part. (laughs) that's it's just a very random place (laughs) it is very
1: random but did you watch the walton's when you were younger or ever in
0: your life no i've never watched it
1: it's just it's a
0: classic though it's a
1: classic kind of little house on the prairie vibe ish not it's just like wholesome and family related and it always ended with everybody going to bed and they would like go in their rooms and it would just show the house and everybody would shut their light out and be like, good night. I
0: don't remember the names, but like, good night, Mary. Good night, John. Good night, Amber, whatever. I was too busy watching my trashy reality MTV shows. Come on. (laughs) You were watching Gilmore Girls, so I'm not too (laughs) mad at you. But The Waltons was just a happy show.
2: The mystery has been solved. So please go to FireDeptCoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way.
1: When this caught on fire, though, on November 22nd, the tracking device showed him driving home from the scene of the fire at 3.30 a.m., so he had been seen in the area, and then dispatch calls out the fact that this fire occurred, and they give the wrong address, for where this fire is.
0: Uh there's And guess who
1: still shows up to the actual place that the fire is. Homeboy. Yep. There goes our friend John showing up. So, by December, they were like, "All right, we have enough evidence that we at least have a warrant." So, they use the warrant. They didn't have enough to bring him in, but they had enough to get a warrant. So, they use the warrant and they end up finding a briefcase of his containing cigarettes, matches and rubber bands. And in his car, they find sheets of lined yellow paper. Does this seem suspicious, Abby? It sounds oddly familiar. They also end up finding a video that he had taken from March of March 14th, 1990, where he'd been near a residence in Pasadena. And then there was more footage of this same house in October of 1982, but this time the house was on fire. There were just a lot of things that made it a little weird they also found a 350-page manuscript book that he had written that was titled Point of Origin, which, as we talked about earlier, we all know what Point of Origin is now. So this book is about a man named Aaron Stiles, who is an arson investigator and firefighter, and he also is an arson himself. He, in this book, uses the same device that had been found from the pillow pyro and he sets fires on the way to arson conferences and in the book burns down a hardware store and kills a little two-year-old boy there's a few similarities again
0: yeah once again that you know that sounds familiar it it really does
1: he claims that this is a work of fiction it has no relation to any sort of actual event and He said, quote, the character of Aaron Stiles was a composite of arsonists I had arrested, end quote. Police were like, yeah, no, we're not dumb. (laughs) And one thing that has not been confirmed, but he wrote about in his book, is a story where Aaron Stiles, the main character, sexually assaults and murders a woman in her vehicle and then catches it on fire. So investigators look into this. And they find a case that is unsolved that matches this. However, they were not able to confirm or find any evidence that John was at all involved, other than the fact that it matched this book that he had written. There were also two other deaths that were had been described in this book that they don't know who it is in real life? If it is something that it occurred in real life or if some of it was fiction, some of it was real life. One thing I didn't mention earlier though is that the little boy that he wrote about in the book had the same that was killed in the hardware fire has the same name as the little boy that died in real life in the hardware fire. So, either way it's sick if he's writing a, about an arsonist that he was investigating investigating or if he was the one doing it. I fullheartedly believe he was the one doing it. He
0: to this day, claims to be innocent, says he didn't do it. Sounds like there's a lot there that would suggest he was the arsonist. Absolutely. And murderer. Yes. So the trial lasts for five
1: weeks, the entire time he's saying he's innocent. At the end of this, the judge, Robert J. Perry, ends up giving him the maximum sentence of life plus 20 years in prison without the possibility of parole. And he was sentenced on September 17th, 1998. He was convicted of 20 arsons, including a devastating firestorm that ended up destroying 67 homes in June of 1980. Holy crap! Yeah, they looked at sentencing him to death. However, the juries, the jurors, deadlocked, and they didn't end up being able to sentence him to death. In 2002, he was transferred from federal to state prison and ordered to pay $90,000 in restitution. I don't think that's enough, but we don't have to get into that.
0: Especially when you consider the cost of damage he has probably caused. Not to mention the emotional damage to, I mean, not even the families of the ones that were murdered, but like if you owned a business or your house got burnt down because of this, like that's a lot. It yeah, Absolutely. A lot more than
1: 90000 And I mean, we know for a fact that he murdered four people in the hardware fire and potentially a fifth person in a car fire. So Yeah, I'm just grateful for the judge for at least giving the maximum sentence of life, even if they couldn't do the death penalty. Right, I agree. The ATF believe that he set nearly 2,000 fires in his years of being an arson. He is believed to be one of the most prolific arsonists in America, and since he's been in prison, the number of fires in the area has dropped from 67 on um, an annual average To one. Holy crap. Like this guy was angry at the world, wanted to see the world quite literally burn.
0: Yeah, dear Lord.
1: And the number of brush fires in the area, so not even fires of buildings, has decreased by over 90% since he's been arrested. Very clear that he was committing quite a few crimes and setting a lot of things ablaze. So he does still claim to be innocent, and he ended up writing an autobiography. That says he's innocent and he'd been betrayed by the legal system, I think that he's wholeheartedly guilty. He absolutely
0: did this, and just a random little side note from me. I don't recommend buying it no um don't don't encourage anybody's bad behavior by giving them your money. <laughs>
1: This is absolutely not something that I even purchased to do this episode because I I don't want to give him any sort of funding for anything. So yeah, don't buy it. If you want to read up more about him, you can. There is also a book written by Joseph Wombaugh called Fire Lover, and he's a true crime author. So he wrote about John's story. So if you want to read about it, I would recommend purchasing his book instead. There was also a film that was released in 2002 by the HBO network if you want to watch a movie this one is acted out so it's not like a documentary it is a movie and it's called point of origin so if you guys want to watch something instead of reading about it or looking up more about it then those would be my my recommendations for it but I believe that it's probably best the sentencing that he got and I really hope to see him truly end up spending the rest of his life in prison
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode.